This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Do you guys get ex- as excited as I do to come and join together as the family of God? To sing praises to His name and to study His word together? I, I, hope, that, I hope that you do. And if you're excited to study God's word, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. We're in week three now of our fall teaching series called Threads, the values that weave together to form the tapestry that is Mill City Church. And a value is is something that we hold dear. It is something that is endemic to who we are. It, it, It helps describe who we are and what we do as a unique faith family. On week one of this series, I explained how uh, in God's economy here on planet earth, he has designed all types of churches to reach all kinds of people for the sake of his gospel here on earth. And every church is a unique family. Each church is a unique blend. Uh, And so is Mill City. And so what we're seeking to do in this series this fall is to share with you from our heart and from the scriptures A part of our spiritual DNA that makes us the family of God here at Mill City Church. In week one, we looked at the glory of God. We looked at value one, worship. That all things exist for His glory, for His name's sake. And that is what motivates us in our mission and our existence here on earth. Last week, we looked at gospel identity. We looked at how the gospel of Jesus Christ does not simply save us... The gospel doesn't simply give us an eternity in heaven, but the gospel of Jesus Christ literally gives us a new identity, a new, a, a new uh, uh, whole outlook of looking at life, and a new spiritual DNA. And that Jesus Christ is not only our Savior, but Colossians 3 teaches us that He is our very life. He is our identity. And today, we're going to see a second aspect of that gospel transformation, and that's gospel family. In his book, The Rise of the Nuns, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E-S, the nuns, the rise of the nuns, James Emery White, who is the former president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, he, he labels the group of the religiously unaffiliated in the United States of America as the nuns. And that this is a growing population of the American culture. That people do not identify with being Catholic. They do not identify with being Christian or Muslim. They just simply identify as being nothing. And the statistics are absolutely staggering if you look at how the growth is being accelerated among this group in America. For example, in 1940, that group constituted about 5% of the American population. About 5%. And over the next 50 years, Between 1940 and 1990, the group of nuns went from 5% to only 8%. Very little movement in 50 years of time. And then something staggering started taking place. Between 1990 and 2008, just a mere 18 years later, that number had almost doubled to 15%. 8% to 15% in only 18 years of time. Today... That number is almost 25%. One out of every four adults would identify themselves as religiously unaffiliated. But it's even more staggering if you go to those under 30. For those under 30, it's not only one out of every four, it's one out of every three. And if those statistics are not staggering enough for us today as the church of Jesus Christ, it gets worse Statistics also tell us that 70%, not 7, but 7T, 70% of our churched children who grew up in church, who maybe even grew up going to great youth groups in our churches, 70% of those kids, when they graduate high school, they're walking out the doors of the church. And many of them are not returning Now, the good news is this. 
that more than three quarters of the current generation still believe in God. But then there's incongruity. Because although some 78% say they believe in God, only 40% attend any sort of religious service on a regular basis. Here is what all of these stats tell us. We could sit here and talk about stats all day long and I could bore you to tears with them. They tell us, number one, that we need to wake up and pay attention. We need to wake up and pay attention. There is something big going on, religiously speaking, in our country, even among our pews. And for the church just to simply remain silent and to ignore that would be a huge disservice to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we would be simply letting go of our responsibility for the sake of the next generation. They also tell us this. That many things that we are doing in the West in the name of reaching people are not reaching people. And in many corners of the church, we are holding on to traditional practices. We are holding on to things of maybe two decades ago or five decades ago. And, and some of us, and I say this respectfully as someone who, uh, even though I work a lot with young adults, many people have called me an old soul. So I say this with respect and all deference to my parents' generation and grandparents' generation, my grandparents who even raised me. We as the church cannot sit back and hearken back to a better day that's never coming back again. We can't just sit and wait for the 1950s to come back around. We can't decry the fact that we're just not what we used to be. If we're going to reach our neighbors, if we're going to reach our coworkers, if we're going to reach our sons and our daughters, our grandchildren, our, our grandsons and granddaughters, if we're going to reach even our moms and dads, we need to pay attention to what's going on around us. And the church needs to respond. The church doesn't need to respond by becoming all things to all people and throwing out the baby, the gospel, with the bathwater and saying we just need to completely reinvent the church. That's not what needs to happen at all. I would argue that what we need to do is go back to the biblical New Testament church and actually adopt what the first century Christians did because they lived so radically together that their simple lifestyles were so contagious that their lifestyles was the predicate for the gospel which they shared. And what I want to show you today is that more than an organization, more than an institution, more than simply a good moral club that people can join to feel better about themselves, the church of Jesus Christ is something far more organic and far more powerful far more spiritual and far more radical than even those of us who have been a part of the church for a long time have ever could have imagined on our own. And my argument to you this morning is if the church of Jesus Christ will proclaim the radical gospel that we talked about last week and will connect the gospel to our very identity and then live in a radical, familial way in which the New Testament Christians lived, I will tell you that that is a radical recipe and a very relevant recipe, recipe for a watching world because at that point, we will actually be calling people to something. We will actually be calling people to come back to the identity which God created them for. And I believe that we will start seeing radical results. We've already seen some of that here at Mill City. And many of you sitting in these chairs this morning are the products of that radical vision. But as, you, as we dive in today and we see gospel family, I want to open your eyes up to what God is calling you to and calling me to be a part of. And it's so much more than we ever dreamed. So here's what I want to do. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2 of Ephesians, and we looked at this radical gospel of Jesus. I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. You can go online this week, and you can study it. But then when you go past verse 10, where Paul talks about the radical change, the new creation that we are in Jesus Christ, the new identity that he's given us, then what he's going to do in verses 11 through 13 is he's going to talk about how he has taken both Jews and Gentiles alike, and has now formed them together to be one race, one group of people in Jesus Christ through the power of the gospel. And we're going to read that together now, beginning in verse 11. 
He says, therefore. What, what does he mean, therefore? Well, as a result of this radical gospel I just shared with you, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Here's what was going on, brothers and sisters. You had the Jewish converts, the Jewish Christians who had been a part of God's covenant people from the Old Testament days all the way to the New And they, by proxy of their birth, their lineage, and their nationality, they assumed that they were even the superior race to all the Gentiles who were coming from these pagan countries, these other countries, these other nations that weren't the Jews. And they had this moral superiority among their brothers and sisters who were being converted to Jesus Christ. And Paul is looking at the Gentiles saying, look, you have been raised your entire life to say that you are less than. You've been told your entire life that because you were not circumcised at eight days or because you were not a part of the tribe of Benjamin or because you didn't learn under all the religious leaders like Gamaliel and others that somehow that you do not share in all the blessings that your Jewish counterparts share in. And by the way, you Jewish converts, you somehow think that you're better. But then he goes on to say, first of all, the good news to the Gentile is that you now have been brought near. And then he's going to go a step further. He says in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Here's what we begin seeing. We begin seeing the echoes of verses 1 through 10 last week that when we come to salvation in Jesus Christ, we're not just putting on a better me. We are actually taking on a new identity. And the identity now is Christ follower. The identity now is is disciple of Jesus. The identity now is son, daughter of the eternal God. And that identity transcends and even trumps our national heritage, our race, our gender, our socioeconomics, and any other identity that we would want to create for us here on earth. And so here's what I want you to see first and foremost as a review from last week. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, I want you to see two radical truths this morning. And these radical truths form the foundation of everything we do here at Mill City. Number one, he saves us to himself. We gain a new identity. He saves us to himself and we, therefore we gain a new identity. There are, there are two phrases, two words that he uses here in these verses to talk about the Gentiles. Strangers and aliens, foreigners and aliens. And they both represent inferior status. In the first century world, the stranger or foreigner was a resident of the, of the Roman Empire who had no intrinsic rights or privileges within Rome. The alien, on the other hand, was also a non-citizen, but was afforded certain privileges and were considered as neighbors. You could very much liken it to the current debate in America among immigration status. There are illegals, and then there are non-citizens who have legal status. And so that's very similar in the argument here of the strangers and the aliens. But then there were the citizens, And citizens, of course, possessed all of the rights, privileges, and protection of the Roman Empire. Now, spiritually speaking, any non-Jew was considered a Gentile. And they were considered foreigners and strangers in the economy of God before Jesus. Consequently, Paul told them in verse 12, you virtually had no hope and were without God in this world. But then verse 13 happens. But now, in Christ Jesus, just like we saw last week in verse 4, but God, He gives you a new identity. He adopts you into His family. 
you now have an identity that trumps every other identity here on planet earth. So the first truth, that's a review from last week, is that he saves us to himself, therefore gives us a new identity. Now here's the second part, and you can't divorce these two. They, they go with each other. The second radical truth is this. He also saves us to his people, and therefore we gain a new family. He saves us to his people, we gain a new family. If you go down now to verse 19, after he extrapolates a little bit more theological reality of your salvation in Jesus, he says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. If you're, if you're, if you're glad and rejoicing today that you are a fellow citizen in God's household today, say amen. That's what Paul says about you. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Do you see what Paul does there? Paul does not differentiate between our spiritual identity in Christ and our attachment to his spiritual family in the church. He not only gives us a new identity, he gives us a new family. The word for church in the New Testament is ecclesia. It means the called out ones. It means that he has called us out from this world and brought us into his family. Now let me introduce you to another word. The, the term is oikos, like the yogurt. It's a Greek word. It's a Greek yogurt. It's a Greek word. Oikos. That word oikos means household. And in the New Testament, that word oikos is interchangeable all throughout the New Testament between a physical, natural household, between a mommy and daddy and the little girl and the little boy, and also the household of faith. They use them interchangeable. And so what I want you to see that Paul is doing is he is telling us that there is something far more about our attachment to God's people and his church than we once thought. It's not about joining an organization. It's not about joining an institution. He's literally bringing us into a new household, a new family, the oikos. But then the oikos is comprised of another word, a, a, an augment of that word, oikaios, which describes the individual members of it. And so when he says you are members of the household of God, he is saying, you are an oikaios of the oikos. It gets at your very identity. You are a member now of God's household. I want you to see very quickly, I could spend so much time on this, but we don't have time to do it. I want to show you how Paul is not just going rogue here. I want you to see how it's not just in Ephesus he has this conversation. He uses very same language in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And because in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he describes how we are now to interact with one another in the body of Christ. He tells Timothy, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And so Paul is going to elaborate on Ephesians chapter 2 and tell us now we actually have names and references by which we refer to one another. Now where in the world did Paul get this? I mean, was Paul just kind of hung up because he was single and he didn't have a family and so he was looking for a surrogate family and so Paul was just trying to press the metaphorical envelope here and just trying to create for himself something to make himself feel better. That could be an argument maybe you're having. Well, not exactly. If you go back to the book of Matthew, where do we get language like this from? Well, we get language like this from none other than Jesus himself. None other than the Messiah's lips himself. And in Matthew chapter 12, in verse 46, there's a conversation. There's a conversation with Jesus' actual biological family. And verse 46 says this, while Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? And who is my brothers? Watch what Jesus does here because it's actually very disrespectful to his family. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus starts expanding the definitions of family. If you go over to Mark, the book of Mark, chapter 10, this isn't just a one-time occurrence for Messiah Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, there's a discussion going on about the rich young ruler who was not willing to give up all he had to follow Jesus. And so Peter, never one to miss a moment to stick his foot in his mouth, steps up to basically say valiantly, look Jesus, we've done it. We've left everything to follow you. Verse 28 says this, Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Look at Jesus' response. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. I could spend so much time on this passage, but very quickly, what Jesus is basically saying is when you come to faith in me, you're going to get brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers and houses and lands in this time. And you're going to start experiencing a foretaste of eternity now by living in this close community household of God on this earth. And then when you give way, when, when this temporal world gives way to the eternal world, you're going to know it in even fullest measure, but you're going to get a foretaste of it even here. Brothers and sisters, what we're seeing from these passages is that in the economy of God, he's not just simply collecting a bunch of people who've made a decision for Jesus who were living in isolation in individualistic relationships with God, but that we are now saved in this interconnectedness into this new family, into this new oikos, this new household. It's now a part of our newfound faith and identity in him. And so the two radical truths I want you to see is that number one, in salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ, number one, he saves us to himself, therefore we get a new identity. And then he saves us to his people and therefore we now get a new family. Now here's what this does for us. Think about those statistics. Those statistics exist because there is a disconnect between understanding what this whole thing is about. That's why they exist. There's just simple ignorance. They don't know. But I can make an argument that there are people, people who have been going to church for 5, 10, and 30 years who still don't know, but they're convinced that they do. This message is for all of us today. With all of these foundations laid, I want to echo what Tim Chester and Steve Timmis so wisely point out in their book, Total Church. They say this, So with this understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Church is not another ball for me to juggle, but that which, gives, which defines who I am and gives Christ-like shape to my life. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the heartbeat of Mill City Church. That's our heartbeat. And if that heartbeat is starting linking with yours a little bit, I would encourage you to lean in today and now let's learn more. So now I want to go back to Ephesians with those foundations laid. Go back to the book of Ephesians and I want to look at three more big picture truths about the body of Christ, about the family of God, and your individual responsibility and role in God's oikos. Can we do that? Let's look at that this morning. Let's look at three specific things in light of this because he's going to go on and keep talking about this in Ephesians chapter 4. I want to start by looking at verse 7. In verse 7, Paul writes this, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then if you go down in verse 11, he's going to start talking about that grace, talking about those gifts. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, 
speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here's why I want to go this direction in the remaining second half of our time this morning. is because the truths that we just looked at through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're not simply theological truths to just stand in awe of and say, wow, that's cool. I'm really glad I know that. But what Ephesians 4 now is going to unpack for us is in light of that understanding, in light of embracing those truths, how now do we live? How now do we behave towards each other? How now do we act and accept our responsibility in God's household? And so number one, what he teaches us in Ephesians 4, here's the first role that we see. Each member of the family, each member of our family is gifted for the good of the body. Each member is gifted for the good of the body. In verse 7, he says, but grace was given to each one of us. That word grace, at the heart of it, means gift. Grace was given. A gift was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And the language refers to grace being distributed to us like conduits. If you get the picture, if it, this is a really weird picture, but I can be a really weird person sometimes, all right? So follow along with me. It, it's as if God comes up to you in salvation and just opens the top of your head. And that's the top of you, so that's the canister, right? And so it opens up and he just pours into you grace. And he just fills you up with gifts, but he doesn't just fill you up with it so you can say, hey, cool, look at my gift. And you go, oh, dude, that's awesome. Look at my gift. Isn't it great what gifts I have? I'm so glad I have gifts. Man, your gifts are cool too. Like that's not the main reason why the Bible tells us that God has opened up your life and just poured in grace and gifts. The scripture says that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift Yes, but he's going to tell us in a minute what that gift is for. And it's primarily to build up the body of Christ. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. Now here's what we learn here also in verse 7. In these gifts, there are varying gifts. Now I want you to know, I'm not tackling verses, I'm not leaving out verses 8 through 10 because I don't want to tackle them today or because we're intimidated by it. It's just simply a parenthetical statement that Paul makes as an aside of what Christ did in the gospel. And then he brings us back to 11 to talk about the gift that he's talking about in verse 7. And so verse 11, he picks it back up. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. You see, there's the purpose that he gives us the grace. The purpose that he gives us the gifts is to build up the body or to strengthen the family. It's for the benefit of the family. But two things I want you to see here that we've been given. Number one, we've been given leaders to equip the body. We've been given leaders to equip the body. In verse 11, he talks about the evangelists, the apostles, the prophets, the shepherds, the teachers. Here's the picture. In our church... God has graced us with three elders. I, one of us, is a paid vocational minister of the gospel. The other two are bivocational. They are guys who work every day, who have families, who are normal everyday guys, but God has called them out and raised them up to shepherd and equip the church. And the three of us work collectively in order to shepherd our faith family and to equip the faith family. But did you see the language in verse 12, the purpose that leaders exist here is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Or to put it in the language that we talked about before, the whole purpose of elders, of leaders, of shepherds in the church of God is to equip the okaios for work in building up the oikos. And the reason why this is so important for us this morning is there are a lot of expectations that pastors and elders and shepherds have. 
Like, for example, it's our responsibility to simply make everybody happy. This may not make you very happy, but that's not our purpose. Some people think that it's the purpose of the pastor and the shepherd and the elders to just go visit everyone. That's not our primary purpose, although that can be included, but it's not our primary purpose. The primary purpose of our existence in the church is not to counsel you. It's not to be your spiritual therapist. That's not our primary purpose, although there is most definitely biblical counsel involved in shepherding a congregation, but that's not our primary focus either. The Bible says... And which I'm thankful for this because I would rather the Bible define for me what my expectations are rather than you. And it's not because I don't love you, because, but it's just I trust God more on that than you. God says that the purpose of the elders, of the shepherds, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, one of my favorite things to watch and how he's grown our body is watching men and women who come to faith in Jesus as babes in Christ and know very, they don't know their spiritual left hand from their right hand, but all they know is that God has called them to salvation and they grow in Christ and they're grown up in the scriptures and they're grown up in the spiritual disciplines and they grow up in leadership. And then I just love watching those people whom you've invested in now take the lead on so many different ministries in our church. It means that God's formula for building up his body works. So God has given us leaders to equip the body and then we've individually been given gifts to edify the body. We've been given gifts to edify the body. You see that at the end of verse 12 that we equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. This really echoes 1 Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you, uh, uh, first, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, you hear some of these same overtones. Paul writes this, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Do you hear that? Your gift is for the common good, not just for you. Verse 11 in 1 Corinthians, all, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And then he goes through, and I'm not going to go through this for the sake of time, but you can read verses 13, 14, and 15. And the reason why we build up the body is so that the body can then grow in unity, grow in knowing Jesus, grow in maturity, grow in good doctrine, and grow in the understanding and appropriation of the gospel. And the whole picture here, Paul says, in verse uh, 15, he says, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Have you ever noticed how babies have very misappropriately sized heads for their body if you haven't measured it you just measure it like most babies have really big heads both literally and figuratively because they think the world revolves around them but that's a whole different discussion but what happens as a baby grows up the, as the baby grows up the the body and the head grow in proportion to one another the head starts growing and, and more, the body is growing up into the head, right? So the, the body is now getting larger and stronger. And that's the picture that Paul is painting here for us. Is that Jesus is our head and as the body builds itself up by using our gifts, the body is going to grow up with our ligaments and our muscles in proportion to Christ who is our head. So first of all, I want you to see that your role is that you are gifted for the good of the body. But secondly, a second role that I want you to see in Ephesians 4 is that each member is responsible for the care of the body. Each member is responsible for the care of the body. Now, the average church member, the average church attender in America sees church through the lenses of that of a consumer. That I am coming to this place and I am sitting here for you to sing songs and to pray prayers, and to teach the scriptures, and offer programs in a way that's going to grow me and my spiritual faith. And I'm going to give my money, and I expect a return. Now, does that broad strokes? Absolutely. But that is the pervasive understanding of the church in the Western Hemisphere. 
And with that understanding, we can wrongly assume that it's just simply the responsibility of the staff or the deacons or the elders to just make all the bad things go away and make all the good things come because we are paying for our services and we're here and we expect you to do what's best for us. Now you can expect for us to do what's best for you, but not from that mindset. The Bible, on the other hand, says that we have a mutual care, a mutual responsibility for one another. It's not just leadership. It's each and every one of us. And whether you know each other or not, but, but the person who's sitting on the second row has a responsibility, at least in a familial sense, to the person sitting on the back row. Because we're all connected in Jesus. Paul talks about this extensively in 1 Corinthians 12. I'm just going to keep going back and forth here because in verse 14 of 12, he says this, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. He says it in Ephesians 4 and verse 16 this way, that from the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. I love that language. From the whole, joined and held together by every joint. I didn't know if you were expecting this morning to be called a joint. But that's what the Bible is calling you this morning. And I believe a, a great picture of this is one from God's creation. And, and I love how God's creation and through his creative hand, he's given us physical, literal metaphors to point towards the spiritual. A few years ago, I went to a conference in San Francisco. And one of the places, I had gone there before. And so I had seen the Golden Gate Bridge. I had seen Alcatraz and, and Fisherman's Wharf and all the sites that you would want to see in downtown San Francisco. But the thing that I had not been able to see was Muir Woods. And Muir Woods is where the famous Redwoods are. And, and the, uh, they're beautiful, large trees. And according to the California Department of Parks and Recreation, these trees can grow as tall as 400 feet. 400 feet. And in case we're keeping score, that is more than twice the height of Fox Hall on campus. 400 feet tall, and they can be as wide as 27 feet in diameter. And in ideal conditions, these trees can grow anywhere from two to three feet annually, which is very accelerated in the coniferous world. Now, the staggering piece of information about these redwoods is the truth about their roots. You would think that a tree that, has, that is 400 feet tall into the sky, that their roots must go down at least three or 400 themselves. But they actually have very shallow root systems but instead, their roots grow outward. And their roots can extend more than 100 feet from the base of their trunk. And what happens is each tree's roots intertwine with the roots of others, which gives these incredibly, incredibly tall trees staggering strength to withstand winds and storms of almost any proportion on the West Coast. What an incredible picture of the family of God. That God has created each member to take his spiritual roots and attach them and intertwine with our neighbor, with our brother, with our sister, with our mother, with our father, with our sons and daughters in the faith. And what happens is our, our spiritual root systems all intertwine. And what Paul says in Ephesians 4.16, it says that from the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And so church, with Christ as our head, and the gospel is our foundation. Let's each look at each other in this body and say, we're responsible for each other because you're my family. 
And I am your family. Centuries ago, John Calvin said, If we want to be considered members of Christ, let no man be anything for himself, but let us all be whatever we are for the benefit of each other. It's a picture of responsibility for the body. And so the first role I want you to see is that each member of the family is gifted for the body. Each member of the family is, uh, is responsible for the care of the body. Lastly, I want you to see this. Each member is important to the building up of the body. Each member is important to the building up of the body. Now he finishes it out like this. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you see the connection? So the goal is we want the body, we want our family to grow up and to build ourselves up in love. That's the goal. So how do we get there? He says we get there when every member is working properly. Go back to 1 Corinthians. How does he put it over there? In 1 Corinthians 12. He says in verse 21, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. Each member working properly. Now here is why this is important. Because we must refrain from and guard ourselves from two pervasive ideologies and thoughts that can so trip you up on any given Sunday. Number one, we must refrain from an attitude of superiority. We must refrain from an attitude of superiority. In Corinth, just as in Ephesus, there were those who had elevated certain gifts above others. We do the exact same thing. Man, that guy can teach and preach the word. And man, how charismatic is he? And man, how great are those worship leaders? Man, I wish I could just sing up there because if I could just sing up there, right? And and then if we're not careful, those of us who are in more presentable roles, we can convince ourselves that somehow we are far more important to the body than we actually are. And so if you're a singer or you're a musician or you're a director of a ministry here, or you're a teacher or a shepherd, we could somehow convince ourselves that we are far more superior than we actually are, and we could think that our gifts are better. And we have the great gifts because we have the out-front gifts. And we must refrain from that attitude because it was the attitude that was so endemic to the Jewish converts because they thought their national heritage made them better than the Gentile converts. But we also must refrain from an attitude of inferiority in like manner. There are those of us who are sitting here today and you're looking around and you're saying, man, I wish I could be as eloquent as he is, as if I was really eloquent. I wish I could sing like those guys. Why am I never asked to do something of big uh, nature in in the church? I wish I had a position I wish I really mattered. I wish I could speak. I wish I could pray out loud. I wish I could be in charge of something. Or I just wish that I was as good as those guys. See, that's an attitude of inferiority. And what I want to share with you this morning in love is that an attitude of inferiority is no less sinful than an attitude of superiority. Because what the Bible teaches us is that every member is important. No matter how small your role seems to be, Or how large and out front your role seems to be. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, which we just read, is that you have a gift, you have a spiritual DNA, you have a wiring that God was very intentional with when he created you and designed you and called you. And so when you exercise that gift 
regardless of its size or its fame, you are contributing to the overall building up of the body. And when every body embraces his role, and every member of the body embraces his spiritual DNA, God has given him or her, the Bible says that it will work properly, and that's when it will be built up in love. And so brothers and sisters, guard yourself from superiority, but also guard yourself from inferiority. I rejoice over the fact that there are people on my staff team that are just very different. We are different people. We balance each other out. We rub each other the wrong way and the right way on any given day. Our elder team, we are so constructed with differing gifts and mindsets and things that we're good at. And we call each other out. We challenge each other. We help each other make each other better. I'm so thankful for all the things that go on in this church behind the scenes that very few people here ever see. But if they stopped doing it, you would know within a few weeks. I'm so thankful for that. And it's because every member of the body embracing the way God has wired them. This morning, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that Mill City Church is not just your average church. Mill City Church is not a spirit, just some spiritual religious organization or institution. This is a family. And it's a family. We are members of the eternal family of God manifested locally in this local family of God. And God has called you to salvation. And this is what I want you to see on the bottom line. He's called you to salvation. He is calling you today to submit to His Son Jesus for salvation. And so if you're here and last week you heard that gospel message that we preached. And then this week you're hearing about spiritual identity. You know how you get that identity is by, first of all, submitting your life to God. Confessing that you're a sinner. Confessing that your way is not the right way. Confessing the world's way is not the right way. Acknowledging that you are what God says you are. A person created in His image for greatness who is marred by the effects of the sin nature for which you need to be redeemed, forgiven, and made new. And so today, if you want that new spiritual identity, then I would call you to repent. That literally just means turn. Turn away from your life of sin. Admit that you're a sinner. And then place faith in Jesus. That Jesus lived the life you were required to live and died the heinous death you were required to die because of your sin. And so the bottom line this morning is, first of all, in order to receive that new identity, God's calling you to submit to His Son for salvation. But then God is also calling you today to commit to His church for sanctification. He's calling you to commit to His church for sanctification. This is why we don't like words, verbiage like, we're going to church or why we're attending a religious service. It's because what we're doing on a weekly basis is we are committing ourselves corporately as the family of God, but then we're actually living as the family each week as we intersect with each other in our lives and our community groups and ministering to each other as we have needs. I would venture to say this morning that there are some of you in this room Hear my heart this morning. There are some of you in this room who are identifying with Jesus. And you've, you've said that you've submitted your life to Jesus. But if you're really honest with yourself this morning and you're honest with me, you're, you're kind of floundering in your faith. And you're unfulfilled in your life. And you feel all alone. And the reason you feel that way is because you're outside of God's design. We work prop we, we, we grow up as the body and we are most fulfilled when we work properly as God designed us. And God designed Christians, disciples, to be connected to a local family. And so there are some of you today who a right response would be, I'm gonna respond today by committing myself to a local church. If it's not this one, that's okay. We'd love to have you here. But if this isn't the best fit for you, we would want to bless you and try to point you to a place that would be a good 
fit for you. The big thing for us is we just believe that Christians need to be committed to a local church for their good and for God's glory. So that might be a way you respond. Another way you could respond is you could even be a member of our church or someone who's a regular attender and you find yourself in a place where you're constantly degrading God's church or tearing down God's church by gossiping or slandering or complaining about leadership or complaining about other things. And today God may be speaking you to say, repent of that sin and contribute positively to the building up of the church rather than being negative and tearing down what Jesus died for and building up. The next value that I want you to see this morning, brothers and sisters, is gospel family. We've looked at the glory of God. We've looked at gospel identity. We've looked at gospel family. And next, we're going to look at gospel truth. We're going to look at the truth, that a value we hold is truth, but that we'll save that. Today, I hope you'll respond. I hope you'll respond to God's word and the proddings of God's spirit who may be speaking to you right now. I'm going to pray for us and our team is going to lead us in a song of response to give us opportunity to think about and process what we've heard in God's word today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for calling us to yourself. Thank you for giving us your people. Father, I honestly can say that I love the people in front of me. And there are so many of them that I walk in such close familial relationship with that I can't imagine life on earth without them. And I thank you for giving me that family. And I thank you for giving them this family. Father, this morning I pray that you would call us to repent where we need to repent, that we would respond where we need to respond, and that we would embrace your view of church. And then, Father, I pray that we would take that view out into the highways and the hedges, and we would compel others to come and join this family, the family of the saints, the family of the redeemed, and find all of their identity and existence in you. But Lord, in this moment, may it start with each one of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.